My father and myself had a client over in uh, Avery County named Zeke Garland. Zeke was about six feet, seven inches tall, I would say. He had made a great basketball player now because he just have to stoop down to drop the ball through the basket. He had taken out one of the early policies of hospital insurance. And um, he became ill and went to the hospital. And when he got out, the insurance company refused to pay his claim on the ground that he had made a false statement and practiced fraud in applying for the policy. And um, his statement uh, consisted of an answer he gave to a question whether he'd ever suffered an accident. We tried the case before a jury up in Avery County, and uh, Mr. W.M. Hendren of Winston-Salem was defending the case, and he was a very fine lawyer, and so he was cross-examining Zeke, and he presented the, the application Zeke had made for the policy in a certain question five, we'll say, and he asked Zeke, he didn't sign that application if he hadn't filled in the answer to question five in his own handwriting, and he said he had. And the question was, have you ever suffered an accident? And the answer was written in Zeke's handwriting, no. Then Mr. Hendren asked him, said, well, Mr. Garland, prior to the time you applied for this policy, hadn't you been bitten by a rattlesnake? And Zeke said, yes, sir, I had. And uh, Mr. Hendren said, don't, don't you call that an accident? He said, no, sir. said, the damn thing bit me on purpose. <laughs> it's uh, impossible to over-magnify the importance of friendship. It's uh, pretty hard to let a friend down when he shows uh, that he's got faith in you and is willing to stand by you. The closest friend I had in uh, growing up was a boy named Charles Lane who lived here in Morgan. And, uh, he and I were inseparable and uh, shared the same thoughts. One of my other great friends was fellow Dick Mitchell who lived here in Morgan. Dick was a good deal older than I was. He was our county sheriff at one time. He's about six feet and four inches tall and uh, scared of nothing. And um, I, I don't think I ever had a more loyal friend than Dick. I think if I was... Uh, some far corner of the earth and sent him a cablegram or a telegram that I needed him and that he would have come immediately without even stopping to inquire why I needed him. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I'll dry them all. I'm on your side. Oh, when times get rough and friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. When you're down and out, when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I will comfort you 
I will take your part. Oh, when darkness comes and pain is all around, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water. I will lay me down. I will lay me down. I think if we have a fault at this time, it is a fault of conformity. We've had an effort to make people think the same things and make everybody think the same things, entertain the same uh, views, support the same laws, uh, the same legislative proposals. And um, I found that when my own children were going through school, they wanted to conform. I had one daughter that she... Uh, got awful poor grades, and I knew she could do a whole lot better, and I remonstrated with her, and she said, well, Dad, I just don't want to make any better grades. said, they'll think I'm a brain. And that made him an odd character, and I think that that has been a, a rather unfortunate thing in the modern times, this idea of conformity. Because I think the strongest people we have are people that uh, carry their own sovereignty under their own hats, and uh, if they wear hats anymore, and they used to say in the old days, and they think their own thoughts. I think it's essential for young people to be encouraged to participate in politics. For I think young people have an enthusiasm, which we need, and also I think they have an idealism, which we need. And I think the worst thing could happen would be for young people to uh, just uh, refrain from participation in politics. I'm not one that's troubled too much about the young people in the country. I get around and talk to a lot of college students, and uh, I find them uh, very refreshing. They, they're interested in so many things. They discuss just about anything with very little inhibitions. They seem to be intellectually honest, and I think the country's going to be in pretty good shape when they take over. I think that we have too many people who do not have a code of ethics which restrains them from uh, committing uh, unethical acts and even illegal acts. I think that uh, perhaps we've had too much emphasis on uh, success. I don't know uh, how you can correct this kind of a situation. And uh, I've thought that Southerners have a, a certain uh, peculiarity due to the fact that all of their greatest heroes were men who failed. In other words, the greatest heroes of Southerners are men like uh, Robert E. Lee and uh, Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart and those who followed them. These uh, men failed in the, their objective. And um, the fact that they failed in their objective, I think, is teaches some of us that uh, the truth that's embodied in a little poem by Edmund Markham because um, 
to me, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Zeb Stewart and their followers exemplified in their lives and in their deaths uh, the truth stated in this little poem. The poem says, uh, Defeat may serve as well as victory to shake the soul and let the glory out. And I think we need more of that spirit in this country that success is not the important thing, it's uh, what you do and uh, how you try to win success, whether you try to win it by fair means rather than foul, and also that if you do not win success, that if you fight for your cause with valor, that the defeat that you may suffer will uh, shake the soul and let the glory out as well as victory will, and perhaps better. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve their turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. That's a great point. I think about the most important thing that a parent can do is to try to furnish some uh, inspiration to the children because the greatest responsibility we have is uh, trying to train up a child in the way in which he should go. As my father used to quote that, he said, the Bible says, train up a child in the way in which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart therefrom. He said he will depart many times during his youth. <laughs> this uh, poem entitled, Grow Tall, My Son, is a very fine poem, and one well uh, designed to encourage uh, a son to develop as he should. Grow tall, my son. Hold your head up high when you say goodbye to your youth. Grow tall, my son. Let your heart be meek and let the words you speak be the truth. Find time in your life to walk by the sea, to look up at a tree, to hold a child on your knee. And grow tall, my son. Give your all, my son, as you live each day and night. 
for even the small rotol in God's sight. We had a chapter of the United Autos of the Confederacy here. The perennial uh, chairman of the organization was um, one of my kin folks, uh, Cousin Sue Tate. Cousin Sue never bothered to get a program until just about 15 minutes before the meeting was to occur. And one uh, Monday night, when I had been in court all day and on a case that was going to take seven more days, she called me just before midnight and said that she wanted me to come to the dinner meeting the UDC was having the next night and make a speech on Jefferson Davis. I said, look here, Cousin Sue, you asking me to come and make a speech on Jefferson Davis tomorrow night? I've been in court all day today. Here it is midnight on Monday night, and I got to be in court all day tomorrow. I just can't do it. I wouldn't have time to think what I should say about Jefferson Davis. Cousin Sue said, well, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Said, in the first place, any good Southerner ought to be able to make a speech on Jefferson Davis at any time and in any place on any occasion without any preparation. And in the second place, you don't need any time to think what you should say about Jefferson Davis. Said, I've heard you speak and I know you speak without thinking. <laughs> The First Amendment, I think, is the heart of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition government for a redress of grievances. In other words, there was a charter of political freedom the chart of intellectual freedom and the chart of uh, spiritual freedom. I think that um, the First Amendment is the only thing that really makes our system of government work. In other words, it's based on the theory that uh, republics such as ours demands the freest and the fullest flow of information. And it's based fundamentally on the proposition which uh, Jefferson almost enunciated. He certainly suggested but didn't quite express, but I think it'd be stated this way that a nation has nothing to fear from freedom of speech as long as it leaves truth free to combat error. There was an old mountain couple, John and Mandy, who lived in a cabin on the mountain out on what we call the Asheville-Murphy branch of the Southern Railroad. All of their boys and girls had grown up and had married off and had established homes of their own, leaving John and Mandy alone as they were in the beginning of their married life. They had always had an ambition to own what they called a striking clock. And so after their last child had married and left them, they saved up their money from their butter and eggs and uh, from his occasional runs of uh, moonshine liquor when they thought they had enough money to buy the striking clock for which they'd been longing all of those years, they went down and caught the train into Asheville. On their arrival in Asheville, they visited various uh, jewelry shops until at long last they found the very kind of striking clock that they'd been longing for all of these years. Fortunately, they had enough money to pay cash for the clock. It was quite a large instrument but they were so determined to get the clock back that John carried it on his shoulder 
They went to the railroad station and took the train back home. And when they got to the foot of the mountain, while John struggled and carried the clock up the mountain and set it up in their cabin, John and Mary decided by mutual consent that uh, the clock uh, struck so pretty that they would sit up all night and hear the clock strike. They decided it'd be a shame for the clock to strike and nobody to hear the pretty tones it made. So they sat up all night to hear the clock strike. Well, the next night, Mandy said she just didn't feel able to sit up a second night, and John said, well, it's just a shame for nobody to hear the clock when it strikes. It strikes so pretty, so suppose you uh, go to bed and sleep tonight, Mandy, and I'll stay up and listen to the clock strike tonight. And tomorrow night, you can sit up and listen to the clock strike, and I'll get some sleep. So Mandy went to bed, and uh, John sat up and listened to the clock strike hour after hour. The clock was entirely regular in its um, operations until the hour of midnight came. And then the clock struck 12, but it didn't stop when it uh, struck 12. It struck 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and kept on striking. This alarmed John very much, and he jumped up and ran and shook Mandy said, Mandy, get up. We got to get out of here. It's later than I've ever known it to be. <laughs> I have found uh, uh, times when you have a strong temptation to cast a political vote because it's politically popular, which you know is wrong. I, I sort of keep myself in the straight and narrow legislative path by quoting uh, this little verse. I have to live with myself, and so I want to be fit for myself to know. I don't want to stand at the setting sun and hate myself for the things I've done. Well, I think we all have a purpose here. I think life is a great adventure, and it's great to belong to the grand old pageant of man. I've been impressed by the fact that uh, the great majority of people are essentially good. And despite all our theological doctrines of the Calvinists uh, about the evil in the human heart, I think that the average person prefers to live a good life rather than an evil life. I have faith in a supreme being. I don't believe uh, that we uh, were created uh, by blind atoms wandering aimlessly about in chaos. And I believe uh, that there are some truths that we cannot try open or explain that we got to accept on faith. That after all, the faith is the thing that lets us walk in those areas that lie outside the bounds of human thought. I think that the greatest relationship in life is marriage. And uh, unfortunately, all marriages are not for keeps, but the uh, ideal marriage uh, is for, for keeps. I'm very happy that uh, I've uh, had the same girl walking beside me for 49 years, and she's never made a misstep during uh, all that time. She was from Concord. Her name was uh, Margaret Bell. Um, I, I guess I'd say I fell in love with her at first sight, and I've been in that condition ever since. She's always been there when I needed her the most, which has been always. She has an uncanny capacity, or you might call it an intuition, to distinguish between what is good and what is bad and what is uh, wise and what is foolish and what is important and what is insignificant. If I've done any good, why, well, she's largely, uh, almost entirely responsible for it. I was asked... Uh, 
some time ago to see what her predominant traits were, and I said, you know, I don't know how you can talk about anybody much that's perfect because you've got all the desirable qualities. We used to have an old hymn book here in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, now they've got a new hymn book, which I don't like because uh, if you find the words of a hymn, you know they got it set to different music. And if you, they have a tune that you know, they got different words to it. And I think that was a terrible mistake. Um, I never did have very much voice, but I used to enjoy singing. Uh, notwithstanding the fact I took comfort from a case at the Supreme Court of North Carolina passed on many years ago called State versus Linkshaw. Linkshaw was a member of a church, uh, I believe in Robinson County, somewhere down east. And um, the jury returned what they call a special verdict. They had him charged with disturbing religious worship. And the special verdict in Linkshaw's case was this, that he insisted on singing during the divine services. But he sang with such a peculiar voice and in such a peculiar manner that he moved uh, irreverent to laughter and the righteous to indignation that the officers of the church had remonstrated with him and begged him not to sing <laughs> because he disturbed the services by singing. <laughs> and he refused to abide by their request, telling them that uh, the uh, Bible uh, said to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and that was a part of his service, and he couldn't worship God without saying it. <laughs> so on, on this uh, question... The, was whether Link Shaw was guilty of disturbing religious worship. And the, the uh, court, the Supreme Court held that he was not because he had no criminal intent. And uh, therefore, <laughs> he, couldn't be, he couldn't be guilty of violation of the criminal law. So I used to enjoy saying it because I took comfort from the fact that the Link Shaw case would have exonerated me. <laughs> <laughs> I think old hymns are not only a source of great uh, inspiration, but also a source of great comfort. And uh, some of our, our most beautiful portraits, really, in the form of the words to our hymns. One of my favorite hymns, and perhaps my favorite above all, is uh, the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. Oh, the old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. 
I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. It's a beautiful song. I was compelled, sometimes against my will, as a small child, to go to Sunday school every Sunday. And then from the time I was about six years old, I was compelled to stay for church. So I've heard a lot of preaching. Then after I became grown, I taught men's Bible class here in the First Presbyterian Church for many years. I've uh, sort of brought up on uh, the teachings of the King James Version of the Bible, which, as I said before, I think is the most beautiful work of literature ever written on account of the, the sublime language in which it's expressed. I think that uh, anybody studies it and observes life, they see it's a good road map to travel by through this world. I was never a uh, fundamentalist in the sense that it never made a great difference to me how we got here, whether the world was created in six days or whether it came through the process of uh, evolution. It was sort of important what we're going to do while we're here and where we were going, but particularly what we're going to do here. And I always got a lot of consolation out of the fact that uh, you don't have to explain everything. You can't explain some things. Tennyson always gave me a lot of consolation in that respect. He said that is more faith, believe me, in honest doubt than in half the creeds. I just think people are marvelous beings, really, and they come here in this world with great uh, aspirations and great uh, abilities, and you know so many fine people, and most of them, as a rule, are people who have some uh, faith in matters of religion. Therefore, as I said in uh, talking about immortality, that... Uh, I have a feeling that uh, somewhere, sometime, 
we are going to have an opportunity free from the limitations that we now suffer to try to do what tasks we may have to do. And uh, it gives me a great deal of consolation. Of course, I think all of us love the, the 23rd Psalm. And to my mind, uh, the, the most complete prayer ever uttered was the Lord's Prayer because it's got about everything in there that we need. There's just so much that's uh, beautiful there. One of the most inspiring uh, songs of recent days is the song, uh, If I Had a Hammer. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening all over the land. I'd hammer out danger. I'd hammer out a warning. I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. If I had a bell, I'd ring it in the morning. I'd ring it in the evening all over this land. I'd ring out danger. I'd ring out a warning. I'd ring out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. If I had a song, I'd sing it in the morning. I'd sing it in the evening all over this land. I'd sing out danger. I'd sing out a warning. I'd sing out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. Well, I got a hammer. I've got a bell and I've got a song all over this land. It's a hammer of justice. It's a bell of freedom. It's a song about love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. There are several very short statements that I've always liked. One of them is a statement of Elbert Hubbard. He said, um, never explain. Your friends don't require it, and your enemies won't believe you anyway. I also like uh, W.C. Fields' statement. He said, uh, horse sense is a good judgment which keeps horses from betting on people. And uh, one of the uh, great humorists of a bygone generation was Josh Billings, I like two expressions of his. One was, uh, it's better to be ignorant than to know what ain't so. And the other is, my mule don't kick according to no rule whatsoever. I guess this story probably goes back a hundred years. They had an old uh, hotel in Salisbury near the depot called the Mount Vernon Hotel. And Salisbury was wide open in those days. Uh, they even ran a saloon in the basement of the hotel on Sunday, so the story goes. Well, there was a lawyer over in Lexington named uh, General Jim Leach, who had won his uh, title in the Confederate Army. And General Leach uh, took the late evening train and went over to Salisbury because he had a case to be tried there the next morning. It was a case that puzzled him because his client was charged with stealing the watch and uh, the Sheriff had found the watch in his client's vest pocket. So he was sort of put to find some defense for his unhappy client. Well, he went over to Salisbury on the train and rested at the Mount Vernon Hotel and found that the judge who was to hold the court had already come in and rested. So uh, 
He called the judge and suggested they go down to the bar and sort of whet up the appetite so they'd enjoy dinner. And so uh, they went down to the bar, and uh, he did something to the judge, which nobody under any circumstances should ever do to a judge. He sort of mixed the drinks on the judge. And uh, when it came time to go to the dining room for dinner, and he got the judge up into the dining room with some difficulty, and the judge passed out in a state of unconsciousness at the table. Well, General Leach reached uh, on the table and picked up all the knives and forks and spoons he could find and stuck them in the judge's pocket and helped the judge up to his room and uh, lay him on his bed full of clothes. Well, the judge woke up about 2 o'clock in the morning with a terrible headache and found all these knives, forks, and spoons in his pockets and had no idea how they'd gotten there. The next morning, open court. Well, after a while, they called uh, General Leach's case. And General Leach just said, Your Honor, this is the most peculiar case I've ever had in my long experience at the bar. He said, I understand my clients is charged with stealing a watch and that the state can prove they found the watch in his pocket, but he says he knows nothing about it. The judge said, well, General Leach, we can't try your case on your statement. We've got to get a panel of jury and try it just like any other case. So they impaneled the jury, and the prosecuting attorney called uh, this juror to the stand as first witness. He testified that late one afternoon, the defendant came into his jeweler shop and asked to see a watch. He said he laid out some watches before him on the counter, and about that time some other customer came in and he turned his back on the defendant to wait on the other customer. When he turned around, the defendant was gone and so was his best watch. He then went to the justice piece and got a search warrant and gave it to the sheriff, and the sheriff came back a short time with a watch, which he identified as the, the missing watch. Then they called the sheriff to the stand, and he testified that uh, he had taken the search warrant and gone to the defendant's home and found the defendant there in bed and found uh, his clothes hanging on a chair by his bed, and he searched his clothes, and he found the watch in his vest pocket. Then the state rested his case, and General Leach called his client around to the stand and said, tell his honor and the jury what you know about this charge against you for stealing a watch. The defendant said, I don't know a thing about it. He said, well, tell us what you did on the day named in the indictment. He said, well, I'd worked awful hard, and I was very fatigued by my labor, and I decided I'd go down to the bar of the Mount Vernon Hotel and get a little stimulant to relax me and said, I got down there and I took several drinks and I didn't know anything else till the sheriff woke me up and told me he'd found this watch in my vest pocket. The judge sort of roused up and he said, where did you say you went and took several drinks? The defendant says at the bar of the Mount Vernon Hotel. The judge said, Mr. Clerk, said, in a verdict of not guilty in this case, said the liquor they serve there will make anybody steal. <laughs> The good Lord might have made something better than country ham, but he never has let me taste it yet. <laughs> well, that's the story about the man. Uh, he'd, he'd bought some uh, liquor, and it was pretty atrocious. And so he called in his friend and said, I got a present for you. And so he gave the liquor to his friend. And after some days, he met his friend and said, uh, How was that liquor I gave you? His friend said, Well, said it's just right, just right. He said, what do you mean, just right? He said, well, I mean that if it had been any better, you wouldn't have given it to me. And if it had been any worse, I couldn't have drunk it. <laughs>
I think that the greatest hunger of the human heart is for a place where we can be free, enjoy our privacy, without fear of unwarranted governmental intrusion. The prophet Micah pictured this hunger when he described the mountain of the Lord as a place where they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. And uh, this concept was carried out by the common law of England when the common law of England was emerging from the mists of history. It brought with it the concept that every man's home is his castle. It was held way back in 1603 in an English case that in all cases where the king is a party, the sheriff, if the doors be not open, may break the party's house either to arrest him or to do other execution of the king's uh, process. If otherwise, he cannot enter. But before he breaks it, he ought to signify the cause of his coming and to make requests to open doors. So as a result of that case, we have it embodied in the interpretations of the Fourth Amendment, which protects the American people against unreasonable searches and seizures and requires the issuance of a search warrant uh, based on oath of affirmation, uh, particularly describing the place to be searched or the personal thing to be seized, that an officer shall knock and acquaint the persons in the building of his presence and purpose and his authority. That's important because that's the only way that the occupants of a building have to distinguish between an officer of the law and a burglar. This rule is designed to uh, protect the officers of the law from uh, being shot by the occupant of the home and also to protect the right of privacy of the occupant. One of the most beautiful things in my book uh, ever written was, uh, or said, uttered rather, I should say, was William Pitt's statement on the floor of the House of Commons in which um, he was discussing a bill that would allow officers of the law to break in people's homes without uh, knocking and without apprising them of his presence and authority and purpose to enforce a excise tax on cider. And in opposing this law, William Pitt said, the poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. It may be frail. Its roof may shake. The wind may blow through it. The storm may enter. The rain may enter. But the king of England cannot enter. All his force dares not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. Now that's an expression of the idea that every man's home is his castle. I think Shakespeare was uh, probably as marvelous a human being as ever lived. I don't understand how any man knew as much as he did and understood human psychology as well. This is very good earthly wisdom that uh, Polonius gives Laertes. To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night today, thou canst not then be false to any man. We have a, an old story here about a man named Joshua Hawkins who was uh, caught by the revenuers at a running a blockade still. And he was uh, duly indicted by the grand jury down in the federal court of states, for that was where we, we called the bootleggers and blockaders convention in the old days. This was before I started practicing law when the judge for the Western District of North Carolina was Judge uh, James E. Boyd of Greensboro. 
Judge Boyd had a sense of humor which caused him to try to have fun with everybody. He would kid everybody, the lawyers, the jurors, the witnesses, and the parties. And um, uh, Joshua Hawkins was sitting in the back of the courtroom waiting for his case to be called. And after a while, the district attorney called the case Joshua Hawkins. And Joshua Hawkins arose and started down the center aisle to go into the bar to be uh, tried. And Judge Boyd noticed that his Christian name was Joshua. So he said, Mr. Hawkins, are you the Joshua who made the sun stand still at Jericho that the Bible tells us about? And Joshua Hawkins says, no, Your Honor, I am not the Joshua who made the sun stand still at Jericho. I'm the Joshua who's accused of making the moon shine in Burke, <laughs> which uh, is the name of uh, his in my county. <laughs> Burke County corn liquor is alleged to be a very potent beverage. I had a friend, uh, Jock Fleming, who went out uh, riding one day in an old Ford car with two friends. The uh, car ran off the road and turned over and... Uh, his two friends were not only very much intoxicated, but they were ba so badly injured that uh, an ambulance was summoned to the scene and took them to the hospital in an unconscious state from both causes. But Jock was so uh, drunk and limber that he never got hurt at all. And so uh, the chief of police, who was another Duckworth named Fonz Duckworth, uh, told me this story, said he went out to the scene of the wreck and found Jock there. And he was trying to find out who was driving the car when it ran off the road so he could indict him for drunk driving. So he asked Jocks who was driving at the time the car left the road, and Jocks said, Full God, Chief, full God. I just don't know, said the last thing I remember was all three riding on the back seat. <laughs> there was a man uh, named uh, Josiah Gilbert Holland who wrote a very beautiful poem and I think it's a poem which expresses the uh, prayer which America makes and which America must make if it's going to endure. The poem is, uh, God Give Us Men. A time like this demands strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and ready hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill. Men whom the spoils of office cannot buy. Men who have opinions and a will men who have honor, men who will not lie, men who can stand before the demagogue and damn his treacherous flatteries without winking, tall men, sun-crowned, who dwell above the fog in public duty and private thinking. I think we're going to have to have men that are more devoted to uh, the system of government in our, our offices, and I think we're going to have to let the American people realize that despite the imperfections of America, that it is the greatest, still the greatest country on earth. I think in this connection, uh, the most beautiful verse of uh, our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, is the last verse, which is very seldom uh, sung. And I would like to uh, quote this last verse. And thus be it ever, when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land 
Praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this beyond is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave.